Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the place where we remember what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, with a special focus on television and the unique part that it played in our and our nation's life at that time. It was a time where we had a grand total of three TV channels to choose from, where many of us watched in black and white on televisions rented from radio rentals or rediffusion, and where the only way you could catch a show you missed was if it was repeated at a later date. That's right, no weekends spent binge-watching six seasons of whatever epic American show is the latest word-of-mouth sensation. Well, to some of our younger listeners, that must make 70s TV sound pretty awful. But the truth is, it was a huge unifying factor in our society. And conversations at school, in factories and offices were dominated by Did you see whatever programme was on last night, type of conversations. We watch TV as families, as a country even, and, God knows our parents needed it, it served as some relief from the dire economic situation that Britain faced as it launched it to its post-industrial age. Sorry, I'm starting to sound like some kind of TV historian, which I'm absolutely not, but I do think it's important we remember this time and are proud of it. If anyone tells me again either how great the 60s was or how difficult it is to be a millennial, I think I'm going to scream. Every generation sees it differently. And I think that my generation just gets on with it, as we had to. Rant over. Now, as always, thank you for your comments and messages. And particularly thanks this this episode to Steve Austin, and I suspect that's not his real name, who got in touch to point out that I'd made a mistake in our episode from last season on Watching the Detectives, US style. I'd said that Jill St. John played the wife of Macmillan in Macmillan and Wife with Rock Hudson, when, of course, it wasn't Jill St. John at all, it was Susan St. James. Now, this tells me two things. Firstly, that I've been making the same mistake for almost half a century. Jill St. John, Susan St. James, Susan St. James, Jill St. John, well... You can see how I got it wrong. And the second thing it tells me is that I'm right to make these podcasts with limited reference to the facts. Some might say no reference to the facts, but I think it's all about what I and others who've been on the show remember. It's our truth, as a member of the British royal family once said. I shan't name him as he's very keen to avoid publicity, but yes, this is our truth, and therefore it's fallible, just like us. Oh, and I always forgot to tell you that. That's not a very good drum roll, but you get the picture. I'll try again. Forgot to tell you that. We're now on YouTube. So yet another way to listen and to leave your comments. I think I'm going to have to stop listing all the ways you can get in touch because it's starting to take too long. But 
for possibly the last time, I'll let you know that you can leave comments on our YouTube page at My 70s TV Childhood, on Facebook at My 70s TV Childhood, on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood, on Twitter at 70s TV Childhood, or you can simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Phew. Now, due to the wonders of modern technology, I'll be on holiday when this edition goes out. In fact, I will have been on holiday and just about come back before this goes out. My wife and I are going to South Africa, a country we've both been privileged to work in, as well as taking holidays there. Africa is a beautiful continent, filled with huge diversity, spectacular scenery, incredible wildlife and friendly, ambitious people. We've come to learn a great deal about African culture, history and heritage in the last few decades, and we're starting to have some difficult but necessary conversations about the influence of Europe's imperial past on Africa's history and on its future. Needless to say, when I was growing up as a small child in Warrington, in the northwest of England in the 1970s, that knowledge and enlightened view of Africa was not so well developed. And I grew up with a really a strange sense of what Africa was, heavily influenced, of course, by what I saw on television. Now, Warrington, like many other places at the time, had what I probably now describe as a lack of diversity. But back then, it was just a straightforward Lancashire town, largely populated by the white working and middle classes. We had a handful of non-white faces in our primary school out of several hundred pupils. And the attitudes of many of the adults in the town was not so much unenlightened, but came from a position of really not knowing any better. My own views of Africa came from a number of sources, including television, of course, but more of that a little later. Now, as regular listeners will remember, my father was a C of E clergyman, and as a result of being part of the Anglican Communion, i.e. the sort of C of E type churches outside of this country across the world, we used to have some quite strong connections with Africa, and we often had African clergy coming to stay with us at the rectory. I was usually transfixed by these visitors. Often we would have male clergy and their wives, no women priests at that time, of course, and staying for a few days, and they'd always have great stories to tell. There was always lots of laughter, and they put up with the silly questions from the little boy at the table who wanted to ask them about lions and zebras. Now, a lot of this was tied up with missionary work, and we would often raise funds for this. I didn't really have any idea what that meant, But it was fun, and I remember every Lent, all of us at the church primary school were given a Lent box to save our pennies from our pocket money to help the USPG, the United Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, I think it stood for, in their mission work, particularly in Africa. And there was also one of my father's old friends who was headmaster of a school in Rhodesia, as it was then, now Zimbabwe. And wherever he visited, he painted a great view of what a wonderful place Africa was. It was only after his death a few years ago that I came to realise that his experience was actually quite remarkable. Reading his obituary in the Times, I learned that not only did he provide food and shelter to guerrilla fighters during the Rhodesian Civil War, putting himself at risk from the Rhodesian army, but he was also a high-profile opponent of Robert Mugabe, whose attempts to silence his opposition in the 1980s ended up in a high-profile court case where eventually he was acquitted of treason charges. Quite remarkable. 
So my main source of information about Africa was, similar to many things in my childhood, the television. Even as a small child, I watched the TV news, which, if you remember, was on just three times a day, lunchtime, early evening, and later evening. And I was generally very puzzled by what I saw and what was reported of Africa. On the one hand, we had the likes of Idi Amin in Uganda, never short of a memorable statement. And then we had terrible civil wars reported in Rhodesia and South Africa with awful scenes of violence coming into our homes via the television. And then there was the entertainment. And for me, Africa featured largely in three TV shows, all of which were a bit different. Now, I've mentioned Blue Peter quite a lot over the course of this podcast, and I think that's because it was, literally, the flagship of BBC TV's children's output. Well, if you remember, they used to have an annual summer expedition where presenters would go off somewhere and bring back lots of film about the country, its wildlife, traditions, and so on. It was generally very educational. And given that in the 70s, the majority of people didn't venture outside the UK, and if they did, they'd probably go to France or Spain. So the Blue Peter Special Expeditions provided a real window on different worlds. I think the highlight that I remember was, I think it was probably 1975 or 1976, when the team went to Turkey and John Noakes experienced a Turkish bath, which seemed to involve him being virtually naked and being beaten up, sorry, massaged by a huge Turkish masseur who was bending his arms and legs into places they really shouldn't have gone to. But then in 1973, I think it was, the team went to Ivory Coast, or Côte d'Ivoire as it's now better known, and I remember being absolutely amazed by what I saw. First amazing thing was that everyone spoke French. Now, no one had ever suggested to the six-year-old me that people in Africa spoke anything other than English. And if it comes to that, so did most other countries in the world. And secondly, the team spent quite a lot of time looking at crocodiles. Like, not cartoon ones, but real crocodiles who looked incredibly dangerous. And I half expected Leslie Judd to end up as the croc's lunch. And the third thing, which I don't really know why I remember it so vividly, is they all had a lesson trying to play the balafon, which was an enormous sort of wooden xylophone, which made the ones that we used in music class at school look, I have to say, rather pathetic. And the other big African feature on Blue Peter was via the Christmas Appeal. Now, I mentioned the appeal in our recent Christmas specials episode, so I won't go on too much, but good causes in Africa made regular appearances, like the 1971 appeal for woolen socks and pillowcases for a boarding school in Kenya, 1973's call for used postage stamps to fund oxen and farming equipment, and 1978's appeal to provide medibikes and other items for health workers in Tanzania. All of the appeals were supported by film segments explaining more about how ordinary people lived in Africa, so they were very helpful and educational at the same time. All well and good as B. Peter was in opening a window onto Africa, it was all a bit worthy. For me, there were other things on television which made Africa look far more exciting. Now, I know that Tarzan has been around for a while. In fact, the original Tarzan story first appeared in Tarzan of the Apes, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, 
and published as a novel in 1914 after originally appearing in a magazine in 1912. A quick confession, I I did look that bit up. The story is a powerful one. Lord Greystoke, a feral child lost in the African jungle, is adopted by a kindly she-ape and raised as one of the ape tribe. Is that right, tribe? I'm not quite sure what the collective noun is for apes, but tribe sounds good. Before being rediscovered by Western hunters and brought back to civilization, only he finds out that civilization is not actually very civilised and he'd rather be back with his ape family swinging around the trees in the jungle. Now, I first remember seeing some of the 1930s films of Tarzan with Johnny Weissmuller, an Olympic swimming champion as Tarzan, and Maureen O'Sullivan as Jane, his, well, his girlfriend. Oh, and Cheetah, his chimpanzee friend. In these films, Tarzan was played as a sort of semi-literate hunk who said things like, Me Tarzan, you Jane. But led by his actions in defending his adoptive ape relatives against the, the crass, violent Western hunters and the equally violent locals. A superb hunter, swimmer and all-round athlete, he could also talk to the animals. Well, a bit like Dr. Doolittle, but not quite the same, if you remember. Um, and he depended on his friend Cheetah to help him out of sticky situations. All good fun, but clearly a bit dated even in the 1970s. Tarzan was a great story, and there were lots of films and a number of TV series, but the one which sticks in my mind is the one which, although it was actually made in the late 60s, was shown on ITV repeatedly during the 70s. Tarzan, starring Ron Ely, ran for 60 episodes, giving plenty of scope for it to be run again and again. Now what was different about this Tarzan was that it was set in the present day and had lots of modern plots and a big budget. Some of the more traditional elements were still there, Cheetah played a major part in the plots, but the producers had introduced an orphan child called Jai into the mix and, for whatever reason, had given Jane the boot. This meant that Tarzan, who was portrayed by Ron Ely, could have just as easily have been an American football star with that physique, occupied centre stage and had to put up with all sorts of new challenges like aeroplanes, all manner of modern weaponry uh, and despotic African politicians. And the reason I like this, though, was it was all done on a huge scale. Big vistas, loads of beautiful and dangerous animals with no end of lions, elephants and leopards to look at, and some exciting storylines with lots of what the censors would describe nowadays as mild peril, keeping small boys like me gripped to the screen. The excitements in the African jungle being a bit different to a wet weekend in Warrington. Africa seemed like an exciting, lively place full of adventure, in a positive sense. 
So it came as a bit of a disappointment when, as a teenager, I discovered that the series had been shot in Brazil and Mexico, and it never featured anything of Africa at all. Tarzan wasn't only Ron Ely and Johnny Weiswiller in my childhood. He also featured in a rather bizarre cartoon series, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. If you remember, there was a fashion for taking TV shows and turning them into cartoon versions during the 1970s. So you had, for example, the filmation cartoon version of Star Trek, which was actually quite entertaining, I remember, if a little cheap on production values. Filmation also produced this version of the Tarzan story, which started off each episode with a bit of scene setting from the man himself. The jungle. Here I was born. And here my parents died when I was but an infant. I would have soon perished too had I not been found by a kindly she-ape named Kala, who adopted me as her own and taught me the ways of the wild. I learned quickly and grew stronger each day. And now, I share the friendship and trust of all jungle animals. The jungle is filled with beauty and danger and lost cities filled with good and evil. This is my domain, and I protect those who come here. For I am Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. So far, so good. But in a similar way to Ronnie this Tarzan, having to deal with the modern world, this cartoon Tarzan also had to deal with some more imaginative challenges, including things like a race of jungle Vikings, some ancient Greeks who lived in the jungle, a sort of abominable snowman type of race who lived in the snowy mountains, and even evil aliens and their nasty androids who came raiding the jungle in their flying saucers. Now, I think you can have too much of a good thing sometimes, but the increasingly bizarre plot lines made this Tarzan a distinctly odd experience for children to watch. Another African theme show I loved, which again was originally made in the 60s but repeated often as I grew up, this one was a generally positive view of Africa and featured a vet who did marvellous things for the animals, but also set a rather unlikely fashion trend which cursed the 1970s. Dactari was great. It had everything you wanted. A kindly animal doctor, Dactari being Swahili for doctor, Dr. Marsh Tracy, played by Marshall Thompson, who works at the Wamaru Study Centre for Animal Behaviour, which is somewhere in East Africa, and his daughter Paula, played by Cheryl Miller, together with Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion, who was, well, it should be obvious what he was, really. 
Now, apparently, the characters were based on a real-life couple who ran an animal practice in Kenya, so a good basis for the story. I'm a bit light on remembering the plot lines, but each episode I I seem to remember followed a certain pattern. There were general goings-on at the animal centre, some hilarity with Clarence involved, an element of danger or bad behaviour, and then everyone ended up as friends. Some of the bad guys got their comeuppance, and the animals did something funny. And that's about it. Happy memories, though. Although, yet again, disappointingly, not actually shot in Africa. I suppose I should have known, had I been aware at seven years old, that the tiger in the opening sequence wasn't in the right continent. And, oh yeah, going back to that fashion trend, the lasting legacy of the show was the safari suit. In my opinion, one of the most ill-judged fashion trends of the late 60s and 70s, for which there was a lot of competition. Men and women wore tailored safari suits, usually in a sort of beige colour, which had what became known as the Daktari jacket as a main feature with a sort of belt across and uh, yeah, flaps as if they, they were in the jungle. I remember even seeing couples in matching safari suits, which may have been fine in the jungle, but in 1970s Britain seemed rather odd. Anyway, leaving safari suits aside... What does this all tell us about how Africa was portrayed on 70s TV? Well, partly romantically, given the Tarzan legend, and partly by trying to show the adventure and the incredible wildlife. What it shows me, looking back, is that we knew very little of that massive continent. And what we did see sometimes came with some kind of post-imperial lens, not recognising the huge strides being made in the new nations of Africa which emerged from the 1960s. I'm so pleased that we know so much more about this remarkable continent and see it now for what it is, part of a hugely diverse planet. Now, I know some of you will be shouting, what about the brilliant wildlife documentaries like Survival and basically anything by David Attenborough set in Africa, which brought the exotic wildlife into our living rooms? Well, they were great, but I'm afraid to say a little bit boring for a preteen child looking for more exciting fare like Tarzan and Daktari. So that's it from Africa and for this episode. As mentioned at the start of the episode, let me know what memories you have of Tarzan of Tarzan or Daktari, or indeed anything which we've covered in our 50-something episodes to date. You can do so by one of our many varied and growing communications channels, which I'm not going to go through again. Just search for my 70s TV childhood in your favourite social media and you'll find us. Take care, and join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.